0: If you're like me this past week, and especially this past weekend, you've had an interesting experience in where uh, an acquaintance or a neighbor said goodbye to you after a conversation and wished you a happy Thanksgiving, and you thought, wait, what? Thanksgiving already? And sure enough, we are four days away from Thanksgiving, the beginning of the end of the year. It seems like this year has passed by so quickly. And as we come to Thanksgiving, we like to give thanks. We like to take a moment to thank the Lord and count our blessings. Perhaps it's something you do as a tradition in your family Thanksgiving dinner. Maybe it's something you do just as a believer on a daily basis. And I was thinking about what I'm thankful for in terms of what the Lord has done and within the Christian life. One of the things that occurred to me as I was studying our passage for this morning is that I am thankful that within the Christian life, there is inequality. There's inequality in that which we are to pursue in the Christian life. In other words, all that is commanded is good and righteous and glorifies Him, but there are clearly some things that are more important than others, and some things, as we have seen in 1 Corinthians 13, that are to be the foundation of everything else. Let me illustrate this for you. Two or three years ago, there was a ministry meeting before service, and the meeting had ended, but the people in that meeting didn't show up for service, which started, as you know, at 11 a.m., and there were a few people, and so Chris and I were saying, where, where is everyone? Let's go check on them, and we even tried to delay the start of service a minute or two to let these people arrive. Eventually, it got so late that we had to start service, and about 10 minutes into service, everyone from that meeting walked in. And I talked to the leader of that meeting, and I said, hey, what happened? Were you guys still meeting? Did you miss the clock? I think Chris even went and told you, service is starting, we got to go. And he said, yeah, the, the meeting finished on time, but yeah, well, you know, good fellowship. And my thought was, well, yeah, you know, church. (laughs) And the point is, not that fellowship is bad. I'm glad that they were having fellowship. But especially on a Sunday morning, the priority would be that they all fellowship with one another and with the Lord through attending the entirety of the worship service. Again, the meeting was good. The fellowship was good. But there are priorities within the Christian life and what we are to pursue. You understand that in your relationships, not just socially, but according to the Scriptures, priorities given to different relationships within your life. And so it is, as we continue our study of love and spiritual gifts Paul points out that there is a superiority, a supremacy of love even beyond what is so wonderful and powerful and significant in the Christian life, spiritual gifts. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 13. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13, Paul explains the supremacy and the priority of love within the context of, of the Corinthians' pursuit of the showy gifts. They were using their miraculous sign gifts to show off. There was a misuse of their gifts. They were using them for their own glory, for their own benefit, as chapter 14 will clearly expound on. And we have seen that he has already given a powerful explanation of the significance and the definition of what biblical love is, that agape love that we looked at over the past two weeks and verses 1 through 7 of the same chapter. And now he connects it to the topic at hand. Even though we have focused on love, even though that section focuses on love, the wider context is indeed still spiritual gifts. And so he brings it all together, starting in verse 8. Follow along as I read. He says, Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, Abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. This morning in these verses, I want us to find three reasons love is supreme. Very simple. Three reasons Paul gives us that love is supreme, superior, the best, the most important. And if verses 1 through 7 weren't clear enough, we come and tie it into spiritual gifts. The first reason love is supreme is that love is forever. Love is forever. Yes, it's probably on your last postage stamp, your Valentine's Day card, but the Bible attests to that too. They are not mere secular platitudes. Love is indeed eternal. Look at verses 8 through 10 again. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And so he begins this with the basic premise, love never fails. The word fails means to fall or fail. Love never ends, says the ESV. And the word there in the Greek has the sense of disintegration demise. It's used of a flower or a leaf that falls off the plant and onto the ground, fitting for this time of year. It will not go back onto the tree and survive, even if you were to tape it. Stick it in. It's dead. It says love will never do this. It will never fall to the ground. It will never rot. It will never die. Both the word never as well as the tense of the Greek word fails, tells us that this is a continual thing. This is always, this is a statement that is true, always has been true, always will be true. Now I want to give you a small nuance to point out that this is talking about time and not frequency. In other words, it is a reference to the permanence of love. And yes, if you put two and two together, you are correct. Even in heaven... There will be love. But what won't be in heaven, by contrast, are prophecy, tongues, knowledge, and we can add in every other spiritual gift. We've seen these before. I'll briefly explain them. Prophecy, the miraculous gift of prophecy was the spiritual gift of receiving and proclaiming God's word. Not to be confused with what many call the gift of prophecy today, which is just teaching, proclaiming the Word of God. Some people would say, what I'm doing right now would be the gift of prophecy. But in the context of the sign gifts, the miraculous gifts, it was a direct revelation from God and then speaking that, just like the prophets spoke their prophecies in the Old Testament. But prophecy will also be rendered inoperative, ineffective, powerless, Understand that this was a spiritual gift given at the time of this writing, 2,000 years ago. That's what done away means. Rendered inoperative, ineffective, powerless. The ESV says pass away. The NIV says cease. Similarly, the gift of tongues will cease. He uses a different word there. means what it means in English, to stop, to come to an end. And then finally, knowledge. This is the spiritual gift of being able to understand and present God's truth clearly and formulaically, this revelatory knowledge, not just studying the Scriptures. This will also come to an end. That same word is used as it was used to prophecy, done away, pass away in the ESV and NIV. Same Greek word there. Rendered inoperative, ineffective, powerless, they will be gone, all three of these. This word, used for both prophecy and knowledge, is very strong. It speaks of a permanent stopping. It means to put out of commission, dead, abolished, gone forever. Tongues, on the other hand, uses a word in the Greek grammar that does not indicate that someone will stop it, but it is the middle voice. In other words, it will stop on its own. So the grammar of the Greek tells us that prophecy and knowledge will be stopped whereas tongues will stop by itself at an earlier time. Regardless by their very nature, spiritual gifts have a built-in annihilation. Tongues having a built-in self-destruction. And the point that Paul is making is not so much that spiritual gifts will be done away, although that's true from what he has just said. He's making the point that love is more important because it will not be done away. It will not cease. It is forever. Love is supreme. That's the point here. Yes, these passages have been used to debate whether these sign gifts still exist. That's not the point that Paul is making. Are these passages that are fitting for that debate? Absolutely. But whatever movement or type of church we're looking at, we must not forget that this chapter is a great chapter on love and not a chapter to feed debates on spiritual gifts. Love is supreme. And so in the next verse, he explains why this is so. Verses 9 and nine and 10, all of these things are partial. We know in part. We prophesy in part. But... Verse 10, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Tongues are not mentioned here because they have, uh, at this point, this future time that Paul is referring to at this moment. In his context, it's future to him. To us, it's past. The tongues, having self-destructed, the gifts are now reduced to two. When they existed, he is saying, they were limited already. Both knowledge and prophecy were in part. So if someone had the gift of prophecy, and even if you looked at the very clear prophecies of the Old Testament, for example, those individuals were not told everything that God has to tell. They were given specific messages. They were even given specific uh, foreshadowings, prophecies of the future. And you see even some of the prophets talking back to the angel, to the Lord, what is this? Who is that? What do those represent? There was still a lack of clarity even for the prophet who was getting that direct divine revelation from God. And they weren't told everything. Some were told some things about Jesus Christ. Some were just told about a future king and the redemption of Israel and nothing about the specifics of being virgin born or even dying on the cross. And so even those powerful prophets of the Old Testament were not told everything. It was in part. And so it is with knowledge. And if someone was given the spiritual gift of knowledge and they had a great understanding of the Word of God, which was not complete at that time, it was still only partial. And even if we go beyond the context of this specific spiritual gift, and say you were or are the, the top scholar in all the world of the Scriptures, even if you memorized every word in its original languages, even if you are coming to the end, the last month and a half, of your read the Bible through the year, and you've read, read every single word of the Scriptures, your knowledge is still partial, because not everything has been revealed about God. It is sufficient. It is everything we need to know. We have enough, but it's not everything. We couldn't handle that. And so it is in part. To put it another way, no prophet was revealed the entirety of the mind, will, and workings of God. That would be impossible. Nobody of the gift of knowledge comprehended all things. And that's why Paul's hyperbole in his intro to love, remember this in verses 1 through 3, makes such a strong point. Nobody knows everything, but even if I did, remember that, have all knowledge, but without love it profits me nothing. Even as those who hold the complete Scriptures in our hands, on our phones, we are warned about going beyond the limits of God's Word. We are even told at the end of the Gospel of John. We are told that the whole world could not contain all the books Should all of Jesus' ministry be written down? That's just three and a half years. And God has existed from eternity past. And so in verse 10, we see that all that is partial will be done away with when the perfect comes. The perfect means full grown. It means mature. But what is the perfect? That's the big question. That is the key to the debate on spiritual gifts. Well, let's move to our next point. No, I'm just kidding. I won't do that to you. There are many views on this. Some say it is the completion of the canon of Scripture. Others say it is the second coming of Christ. While others say that it is the eternal states, which you understand is after the second coming of Christ, after the millennial reign, eternity, the new heavens and the new earth. In context, it is clear to me that we're talking about eschatological realities, that is end time realities, because as we go on, Paul talks about seeing God face to face. That does not happen with the completion of Scripture. That does not happen fully at His second coming. And specifically, we know that because we have the complete Scriptures, that there is no more use for the miraculous gifts of prophecy and knowledge. Again, tongues having ceased before that time. But what he is talking about, again, is emphasizing the supremacy of love. And when that future day comes, there is no need for any of this. But love will still exist. As a side note, just a practical note, were the gifts of prophecy and knowledge still around today? Today? then we could not trust in the authority of Scripture because that would mean it is still being written just on a practical note. And so though he is talking about a future day, we know that these gifts have ceased already. More broadly, we understand that these gifts and all spiritual gifts, which were to be used for the building up of the body, which are to be used up for the building of the body, are not necessary when we are in eternity because there's no need for building up. We will be glorified. We will be sinless. We won't need those things, even your spiritual gifts that still exist today. You will not need them. We will not need the gifts of helps. We will need the gifts of encouragement because we won't need encouragement. There will be no discouragement in heaven. We won't need uh, the gifts of giving with liberality because there will be no church rent. There will be no poor people. There will be no hungry people. Everything would be taken care of. We will have everything we need, but love will still exist. And that's the main point. When all is said and done, when all the arguments are made, when all the debates have settled we must remember the main point. Love is supreme. When we take this into the pews of the Corinthian church, we see that Paul is confronting them for relishing in that which is temporary at the cost of that which is permanent. Did you catch that? Focusing on, bragging in, relishing in, That which is temporary at the cost of that which is permanent. That is gifts over love. This has to be taken, when we understand our modern spiritual gifts, this has to be taken within the context of the whole chapter. Paul said that right at the beginning. You cannot do all of these things without love and think it has any sort of benefit to you or in the eyes of the Lord. It must be done with love. And so we can take that principle today. Nothing that is temporary should be done at the cost of that which is permanent, at the cost of love. You should focus on things that are temporary. Your family, your jobs, your bills, the church is temporary, the service within the church is temporary, but not forsaking love because then all of it is worthless. It is not enough just to feed your children and make sure they survive and get a good education because without love, it is pointless, especially as a believer. It is not enough to just grin and bear it as you muscle through your workplace and dislike everybody and dislike your job, but hey, it pays the bills. No, without love, it is worthless. Yeah, you get a paycheck, but spiritually speaking, it is worthless and it. Also, more to the point, to come here, to hug people, to encourage them, to pray for them, to give sacrificially, to almost lose your job because you're taking up so much time serving other people. Even that, as we saw, without love is absolutely worthless. Love is forever. It is supreme. Second reason that love is supreme Love is fixed, it is definite, it is permanent. It's not something that fades upon fulfillment because it is ongoing. Look at verses 11 through 12. He says, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Two different pictures Paul gives to illustrate his point. One, the, the physical human growth of a child to an adult, and one of the reflection in a mirror. Let's start with the first analogy. A child, as you know, speaks with a limited vocabulary, mispronunciation, erroneous grammar, and that's okay. A child thinks and reasons with limited experience and sheltered knowledge. He is interested in things that a child is interested in. He is less concerned about others and consequences. What makes sense to him may not be possible in the real world. What makes sense to her may not even exist in the real world. So they think, they speak, and they reason like children. All that to say... A child behaves in a way that is totally and understandably appropriate for a child. But when that child grows up, it is no longer appropriate. For a grown man to seek to eat candy three meals a day would not be appropriate. For a grown man to come up to you and say, hey, I know you're in a really difficult situation, and you need help buying a new car, I want to buy you that new car and then pull out a $1 bill like a child would. You see a child do that, oh, your heart melts. He wants to help. He doesn't understand that that is not much. But for a grown man, at best it would assume, be assumed to be comedy, at worst it would be scoffed at. And this is why Paul says that when he became a man, an adult, he did away with those childish things. He did away with that childish thinking. You would not accept the Apostle Paul to come up to you and introduce at a big conference, the great Apostle Paul preaching the Word of God, and he comes and he goes, hey, goo, goo, ga, ga. he has done away with childish things. And what this picture is, is a physical human growth, illustrating the revelation of God, first, did not come all at once. It came through phases as a child grows. But in that growth, what is appropriate at one stage is not appropriate at a future stage. So as the scriptures were being revealed through those with the gift of prophecy and the gift of knowledge, and it was being codified, written down, canonized eventually, It came in stages. And then people said, oh yes, that's right. In the Old Testament, you would not expect them to say, yes, I repent because my Savior died on a cross and was raised three days later. They would not know that. There would not uh, be anyone talking about the Virgin Mary. They would not know her name. But then, later, as it came, ah, there it is. He's the Messiah. Oh, what? He's going to die? No, I don't think so. Oh, yes, he's supposed to die. He died. Oh, he raised on the third day. And so it came in progression. And as that progression came, there were certain things that were in its infancy of the church and our understanding of Scripture, but now that it is complete, we do away with childish things. And so... There are no longer a necessity for certain things that belong within the adolescence of the church and Christianity, such as the gift of prophecy, apostleship, and things like that. But when we look at the context, the ultimate maturity is, again, in eternity. And these childish things are no longer necessary no longer appropriate. I don't know even how it would work, if it even exists, for you to say, oh, you need some money? Let me give you some, I don't know, dollar bills with a picture of Jesus instead of George Washington. I don't know how that works. You wouldn't have money. We will have riches and crowns, which we then lay at the feet of our Lord, who helped us earn all of those things, who earned them for us. But they're just not appropriate. They belong to the time of childhood, which we are in right now. But love is appropriate in eternity. So just as love remains, so we do away with the things of childhood, the church age. That is spiritual gifts. The section, second picture that Paul gives us tells us the same thing but from a different angle. He says in verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. The ancient city of Corinth was actually famous for their mirrors, among other things. And back then, they would have been made of highly polished metal rather than the glass you would find in your modern bathroom today. And the bronze mirrors of Corinth were some of the finest in antiquity. But when you looked in one of those mirrors, a Corinthian bronze mirror, though giving you one of the best reflections you could get at that time, it was still dim. It was still imperfect. It was not perfectly clear. It wasn't a perfect image. And more to the point, even if the image was near perfect, As an image you saw in your bathroom mirror this morning, it pales in comparison to seeing someone in person face to face. And the analogy is aided by the word Paul uses. The word dimly actually means a puzzle, a riddle, an enigma, an image that is indistinct. What is that? Can't quite make it out. And what he is illustrating is the Word of God that had been revealed up until the writing of this letter, which was not all of the Word of God. That is, that believers had and have today imperfect knowledge of God. Even with the completed Scriptures today, we have an imperfect knowledge of God. Sufficient, but imperfect. In heaven, more accurately, the new heavens and the new earth, however, we will see God face to face. And what's more, we will not have sin. We will not have assumptions. We will not have our pride. We will not have the 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 people buzzing in our ear from different wrong theology that we've heard in the past. We just see Him face to face, totally in our glorified states. And that imperfect, indistinct, puzzling image of God that is similar to the fuzzy picture of an ancient mirror will become perfectly clear, distinct, It will be a perfect, distinct, clear knowledge of God, at least to the degree that will be possible by human beings, even in our glorified state. There are things today that you explain. You can quote scripture after scripture. When someone says, explain it to me, you explain it by reading those same passages again because you don't get it. You can't explain it. You aside from just telling people what the Bible says, you can't explain why you don't worship three gods. Because that is illogical. Three persons, one God, that is illogical in humanity, in human logic. You put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and who he was and is and what he did and what he needed to be to do what he did, and we accept it by faith, but ultimately... 100% 100% man and 100% God is 200%. Our human logic wants to say he was 50% God and 50% man because a person can only be 100% of something. But we accept it by faith. We see things dimly, no matter how much we study and understand the Scriptures. But then face-to-face, at the instant we see him face-to-face, I believe our first words perhaps after falling on our faces in worship and thankfulness, we'll be, oh, that makes total sense now. And so, in eternity, we will have that clarity. So much so, that Paul equates our future knowledge of God with the knowledge that God has of us. He says, I will know just as I have been known. We know with completeness, our knowledge will be full. God knows us better and even more intimately than we know ourselves. And we understand this picture. We understand this analogy. Some of us understand it all too well. You really enjoy, you enjoyed a year and a half of a 30-second commute, wearing your PJs to work, maybe throwing on a dress shirt just on top for your Zoom meeting. You enjoyed the clear air, the lack of traffic. But there was still something in your mind that said, I just can't wait to see my coworkers again in person. The relief that you expressed to me when we finally met again after months of meeting on Zoom only in church, to sing with one another, to see one another, to hug, maybe, fist bump one another, but just to see one another face to face. You really get this if you've ever dated online or, like me, have heard stories of such relationships. And you know with the modern twist what this means, to see dimly, A picture online that even with modern cameras does not always give you an accurate picture of the actual person when you meet face-to-face, and you understand that. You know that. You brace yourself when you go meet them in person for the first time. Even the description, like the Scriptures, is only partial. They can't tell you everything because you're not going to read that. They want to be able to fill in something if you go on an actual date. Get Really get to know the person? Oh, now I understand why you said that in your profile. And in the same way, in our sinful, finite existence, we have a limited, again, but sufficient, knowledge of God through the Scriptures. But we'll one day be with Him in person, face to face, and all that fuzziness will be gone and all the questions will be answered. Even in the Old Testament, Phrases such as face-to-face, eye-to-eye, mouth-to-mouth were idioms that meant something that was received directly, not through a third party or other medium like a dream or a vision. And once again, Paul is directly emphasizing the partial, temporary nature of spiritual gifts, indirectly highlighting the permanence of love. Love is supreme because love is permanent. It will not pass away. And as we close the passage, he goes back to being direct in verse 13. He says, but now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And here we find our third reason, love is supreme. We've seen that love is forever, it is fixed, and finally love is foremost. Love is foremost, which I understand is redundant for supreme. Faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Here he concludes his thought. He begins with the word now. It is not temporal, as in here and now, but logical. So the logical result of his teaching here is that faith, hope, and love abide. This trifecta is found all over the New Testament. And here he says that of those three powerful, love is the greatest we know that this is true in part because only love will last into and through eternity. But hope will be fulfilled. You don't need a hope some, for something that you already have, you're experiencing. You would correct your child if as you are standing there and they are staring physically at Cinderella's castle saying, I hope we go to Disneyland someday. You are there, my friends. (laughs) Hope is fulfilled in eternity. Faith, so important. But faith will become sight and will no longer be needed. For the time being, all three are vitally important in the Christian life, but love is still supreme. Not, again, that we ditch the other two or that we ditch spiritual gifts, but as we've seen, love is to be the motivation of all things done. And will, in turn, result in all things being of worth to God and your spiritual life. And like with spiritual gifts, but even more so, when you think of faith and hope, you realize how instrumental they are to the entirety of the Christian life. Could you imagine living the Christian life, sharing the gospel, meditating on the gospel, if God did not tell us in His Word that hope was a thing, could you imagine not knowing, not desiring, not having something to cling to, to anchor to when you look at your sin? Just maybe my sin's going to be for eternity. How do I know? If you don't have a hope of eternity, of sinlessness, of glory, and faith. Can you imagine living without faith? You can't be saved, according to the Scriptures, without faith. Where would we all be if faith wasn't a thing? It's hard to even imagine, right? If, we, if the Bible said you can only be saved if you actually see and experience these things, and so a few hundred people that were there at the crucifixion would be saved and the rest of humanity was damned because we couldn't have faith in something that we cannot touch or see? They are so important. We need them. They drive us. They make the Christian life make sense. They are pillars of the Christian faith. And yet love is still supreme above those two things. They keep us grounded They keep us focused on what matters, yet love is foremost. It outranks all of them. And when all else ceases to exist, one day we will still love. Love is foremost, even among the foundational, all-important trifecta of the Christian life, faith, hope, and love. Here's the thing, guys. In the context of the plan of redemption, spiritual gifts are crucial. We've seen this over the past few weeks, past month or two. Now, we've all been given a spiritual gift. That's how important it is. If you think about the other things that in salvation all Christians are given, and a spiritual gift is among them, that's pretty powerful. It's right there with you're saved, the Holy Spirit, forgiveness of sins, A place in heaven, a spiritual gift. It is very important. And they are crucial for the existence of the church. They are crucial for us to be able to survive this world that hates us because it hates God first. We need that. We need one another. We need help. And the help we don't want from people who don't understand, who aren't like-minded, who aren't within the body of the redeemed, we need, we need and we want help from one another. I, just think about how amazing God's plan is, is not just creating the universal church, it's that I'm going to put churches everywhere. And I'm going to give people the spiritual gift of being able to start those churches and build up those churches on a human level. So that we can have people and not just say, Well, I know there's Christians out there. Maybe I'll find one at work. Where do I go? I need help. But you say, Well, I have a local church. And you think about how spoiled we are. You don't like this one, go to the one down the road. You don't like that one, there's another one a couple miles away. That's not universal. You understand that? That's not found all over the world, even all over the U.S., it's so important spiritual gifts. Keeps us thriving. They help the objects of mercy glorify Him fully and functionally. And then you have hope. You have faith. And love is more important than all of these. Love is more important than that which is foundational to your existence, faith. Love is more important or that than that which keeps you going in the midst of trials and sin, hope. Love is more important than the vast array of giftedness in our church and every church that keeps us keeping our heads above water. And so if faith and hope... And spiritual gifts, arguably three of the most important things in the Christian life, which, if removed, the Christian life probably wouldn't really survive very well. If love is more important than those three, then wouldn't you say that love is more important than all else? Wouldn't you say that love is more important than your desire for comfort? Wouldn't you say that love is more important than your self-proclaimed need for rest and vacation? Wouldn't you say that love is more important than your job, your money, your children, your marriage, your desire to be married, the church? It is so important. It's like saying... The threads of this coat are more important than the coat. It's not just an object, a situation of comparison. Love is so intertwined, entwined with all of those things, that if you pull out this thread, the coat does not exist. And that is Paul's point regarding love and spiritual gifts. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for your goodness to us and your supreme example of love. We thank you that you are love. That you have given us by your Spirit the ability to love. May we strive and excel still more in this. May we prioritize love above all things to the point that love is in all things. Help us to repent of the sins that are keeping us from love. Help us to repent of our lack of love as as a judged by the 15 characteristics we saw a couple weeks ago. Use us for your glory that we might do that which is considered the foremost commandments, loving you and loving others. Help us, Lord, because we need your help to love in a way that is, frankly, humanly impossible outside of the believer's life because it's outside of the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that this supreme pursuit and characteristic will be perfected and existent in eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand as we close.